Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. Delighted to be here with you. I am your host. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. I I think we've both been uh, coming to the realization we have jobs because technology (laughs) just uh, likes to do its own thing sometimes. I've been frequently reminded this week that the reality is if things didn't break, I would be out of a job. Yeah, you know, and sometimes that splashes over into personal life and you know, we get a glimpse of what it's like to be a normie from time to time. Absolutely. So we'll get into that as the the episode goes on. We'll talk a little bit about sustainable technology, differentiating between consumables and something that you can invest in and you can own. But first, your feedback. Our first email comes in from Bree. Bree writes in and says, this might be a bit low brew for you geek experts. I'm interested in getting started in Linux and I'm willing to spend the money to buy a laptop, but I have a few hurdles that I need to overcome. First, I need the laptop to be one of the brands that's sold with a student discount. I'm told there are three options, Dell, HP, or Apple. Second, I need to be able to keep it under $2,000 as this is what my parents will reimburse me for. Third, I want to run Linux out of the box with no issues. I've literally installed Linux twice in my life. Both times, it was a struggle for me. I need to have it to where I can plug in the USB stick, click next. Any sort of kernel modding driver compiling is outside of my skill set currently. Thanks for my question. Love the show, Bree. So I'll start here. Out of those three options, Apple for me is out right off the bat because if you're, and, and we're going to talk about this as we carry on in the episode, if you're looking for something that you can invest in, that you can own, and that you you know is going to work out of the box, Apple might be at the bottom of that list. So can you get Linux working on a Mac? Sure. Is it guaranteed and is it going to be easy, particularly if you're buying it new from the box? No, probably not. Okay, then we move on to HP. I've had a couple of HPs. I'll be honest with you, Bree. I've been very disappointed in the HP laptops that I've had. Uh, I have weird issues with them. I just got done. My my last uh, workhorse workbook was was an HP ProBook, and I was not impressed with it. Um, It had an issue where the power controller would lock up. The BMC would lock up. The only way to reset it was to push and hold the power button long enough until the thing completely powered down, and then I could plug the charger in and it would charge back up, which is a huge pain when your laptop is encrypted. Um, so I, 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 have, I struggled to recommend HP. Dell, on the other hand, great laptop. They make fantastic computers. And so far as I understand, they do have an educational discount, and apparently you're aware of this as well. So of those three options, I would tell you to go with a Dell. Now, Dell has hardware enablement for Linux on the vast majority of the models of their machine. You can reach out to Dell and ask them on a specific model, but in general, I think the Latitude line is a really great place to start. It's an excellent balance between 
really good performance and really good portability. So it's a business grade, well-built computer that's going to last you a good long time and will likely run Linux right out of the box with no problems. Things that you might not get to work are things like the fingerprint reader um, and like they have like the hello cam. So some of those things, if you open them in VLC, it will just look like almost like a flashing disco light show. So have some of that. But in general, absolutely good, really great laptops. I have my current workhorse work laptop is a Dell Latitude 7330. And it is without a doubt, one of the best laptops I've ever used in my life. Uh, just an excellent, outstanding piece of build quality and works flawlessly out of the box with Linux. Now, I know that you're, I know that you said that your parents are willing to reimburse you. And I think that's awesome. But if you were looking for a laptop that you wanted to buy and you wanted it to be a little more cost effective, one of the things that you might consider is purchasing a secondhand Dell. And my favorite computer right now for the money is the Dell Latitude uh, 7490. So this is a laptop that can be purchased for around $200, maybe a little bit more on eBay. It comes with a 1080p display. You can get it an i5 or an i7, 8 gigs of RAM. You can put an, S a a an NVMe drive in it, and it has Thunderbolt. And there are very few laptops that you can buy that have Thunderbolt that don't sell brand new for close to $1,000. And so to be able to buy a used laptop for like 200, I think is a really great deal. So you might check that out. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. You'll find that at uh, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Steve, any suggestions for Bree? So Dell ships laptops with Linux, and I'm surprised you didn't mention that, that uh, I would probably go that route. Uh, I have not had a problem with a Dell machine in years yeah. being, working with Linux. Um, so I'd I honestly, in, when I was living in Canada, we couldn't get the, the Linux laptop. So I just bought the same model that came with Windows. Mm -hmm. And I uh, I think it was Barton George at the time. I tweeted at yeah. him and I was just like, hey, I bought the same model specifically because you launched it with Linux. So just so you know, mm -hmm. um, my actually both of the current laptops, my wife and mine are both uh, Dell laptops. So I don't have... <clears throat> Pardon me. I don't have resounding things to say about Dell. I mean, I echo what you said about HP 100%. Mm. I have had not the best experience with them through and through. I might engage System76 to see if they have a student discount. I'm, I'm curious yeah. as to why that is a, a thing. If the parents are reimbursing, um, I might I might engage System76 and see if they'll even like poke a loophole for mm -hmm. it. Um, I, I've had tons of good experience with System76. I have a few of their their machines over time. So you want something that runs Linux pretty flawlessly. I mean, you can't get better than the play, place that is actually shipping. Make, they make their they make their bread and butter off of shipping Linux. Yeah, so. they do, and they, they they walk the walk. You know, you go into that place; they're all running System76 hardware, running uh, Linux. So absolutely, um, I, I will tell you that. So the reason that I didn't suggest the um, the Sputnik series or whatever it is they call it now is they have only specific models that they will ship with Ubuntu, and sometimes those models require the, like, they'll ship you an ISO, or they have their own little spin of the operating system, and they'll allow you to do that, but if you if you go to restore and just use, like, a regular distro installer, sometimes it, it doesn't work quite as well as, as their image does, like, in the way in the trackpad and stuff like that. So one of the nice things about just 
buying the laptop that you want and installing it is you get a range of their entire lineup. And I've again, I've yet to have a Dell that has showed up and I plug the flash drive in and I wait for it to boot and I click next a bunch of times and everything just doesn't work out of the box. So might be a, a route to go there. But I, I, I second that, Steve. I think it's a great idea. Maybe check with System76. Our second email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, well, actually, uh, he says, good day, everyone. I'm migrating from mobile smartphone to a SIP physical handset. I have a solid, good wired VDSL2 connection 5025. Does anybody have recommendations for a good entry level SIP phone? So Charlie actually joins us uh, via Mumble. Welcome in, sir. G'day. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. So um, as far as entry level SIP phones... I have been a, a really big fan lately of Fanville phones. So this is, now to be honest with you, I'm using them with uh, with 3CX. So that's part of why I like it is because it makes it very simple to provision. But the X3U starts at 67 bucks, has a, has a web interface. You can log in, give it a SIP, username, password, and you can log in and it works really great. I would tell you that the quality of these phones uh is they're fantastic. And I would put them on the same level as, or maybe just one step below of like a Polycom or a Cisco phone. I mean, they're just, they're very well-built phones and they work very, very well. And the ones that I've seen deployed inside of offices, people have had excellent luck in the way of call quality, audio quality, those sorts of things. That's good. Yeah. The problem is not a lot of the American stuff makes it to the Australian and New Zealand market. So that's why I listed uh, Grand's, uh, Grandstream, and uh, there was another brand Yay I listed. Both, both, yeah, both of those were like around the hundred dollar mark. Uh, with the Black Friday sales, I picked up a cheap uh, Power over Ethernet switch. It's got six Power over Ethernet ports, which are ten one hundred, and two gigabit uplinks, and they came to thirty five USD with free shipping. Okay. Yeah, I say I would say out of those two, I maybe would slightly lean towards Yealink over Grandstream, although to be honest with you, sir, both of them are really kind of in the in the in the same ballpark. Again, a lot of them are deployed in many businesses. People have excellent luck with them. The nice thing about both those brands is are they're very, they're built with open standards, so they're designed to be used with a variety of PBXs. Um, so I think you couldn't go wrong either way. If I had to pick, if you held a gun to my head and said pick one or the other, I'd probably lean down towards the Yealink, if only because I have more experience with them than Grandstream. But again, I've had both phones. I like both phones. I think they're great. So there's no issues you've seen in the wild with uh, both of those, and they work with Linux well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're just a web interface. You type in a username and password, give it the, the you know, your SIP server, give it the gateway address and it will just it'll log in. It'll be great for you. As far as a POE switch, um, I really like for the low end. I'm a real fan of Unify switches. They're they're inexpensive. They perform well. They have enough features to get you by. If you're just looking to power something, that's probably a good way to go. As soon as you want to step up from that, I might then jump to something like a TP-Link, which is still kind of a budget switch, but it's a budget switch with a lot of really great features in it. And then from there, you would go to your HP or Cisco or something like that. And at that point, you're making a jump from a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars. Um, so that's kind of where that would break down. If it were me, particularly with phones, I would, I would absolutely stick in that unified TP link thing. Cause really what you're looking to do is get a network connection and get some power to the phone. I bought TP link before for myself and customers I've dealt with, but unify is massively expensive in Australia. 
I think okay. it's because it's a American brand where I think TP-Link is an Asian one. So often the Asian brands um, are either made in Singapore, Hong Kong, or China, and they're shipped directly over to Australia, where for some reason a lot of the American brands, they might be made in America, but they might be made in China. So what they do is they make it in China, send it to America, and then send it to Australia. <laughs> so it's like that extra cost shipping it all around. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that, th- those would be my recommendations. That's, I think, where I would start. Um, and if you run into problems, then I would kind of upgrade from there. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that sounds good. I appreciate I appreciate you writing in. Thanks. Uh, again, you can join us via mumble, mumble.mindrip1.com, or you can uh, join us in our interactive chat room at geeklab.ninja. Our third email comes in from Andy. Andy writes in and says, thanks for discussing speedtest.net for my testing ISP throughput. I've used, I've ways used Speedtest CLI for a quick terminal test with a rough idea, but just had some other options. Quick question. I have a customer who is trying to work from home over a point-to-point link. Read line of sight solution by Radwin. She can't seem to get it to work from home because something called jitters. Her VoIP calls get choppy and garbled in the connection, and it's plagued by jitters. I've checked her, her setup numerous times, and every time I'm there... Signal-to-noise ratio rates are perfect. They're steady. And her antenna view of the tower is clear and unobstructed by anything. What are jitters? And a term her IT department is using. I've never heard of this term. And I can't seem to find what causes them other than late-night coffee. Thanks, Andy. So, uh, Steve, what uh, what are the jitters? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, from from the context, I would say that if I was to hazard a guess, I would think that this is a technical person trying to... Uh, explain a t- concept to not a non-technical person and so I'm, jitters is, would transfer f- pretty easily i'm guessing that they're talking about the variation in latency of packet flow so if you have two connections and you're trying to send packets from one to the other and you get congestion obviously some of those packets are not going to make it on time and we oftentimes refer to this as network jitter um this is so this is possible and it, and it might be what uh, she's experiencing, but what I would, what you need, you need more information. Um, and so there's a couple ways to get it. You can set up some sort of monitoring system. So you could set up something simple like smoke ping and watch the connection and see what her connection from one point uh, of the link to the other point of the link is. You could do that. The other thing is you could get a, a little bit more in, you could get more, a little more advanced about it and start logging specific network traffic with a network monitoring system uh, like LibreNMS or something like that. It it all depends on how much you want to dig into it. But really, Andy, to troubleshoot this problem, I think you're going to have to be there at the time that she's experiencing the issue. When the call was getting choppy, that is the time to go look at the network traffic. That is the time to go look to see if that point-to-point link has any sort of uh, network problem or if there's any sort of obstruction, something like that. The weirdest things will cause these kind of problems to come up. Steve, a situation with a microwave comes up, it rings a bell in my head. Yeah. Um, so working at a government office some time ago, a couple of years ago, not not ancient history, like two or three years, every day somewhere between 11 and 1 p.m., the, uh, the Wi-Fi would just cut out. And it turns out that the break room microwave would just knock the Wi-Fi out of the entire floor in this old, like, completely concrete building that we were working in 
So unless you're there to see that, unless you're there and looking and saying, what is happening right at this moment? And, oh, yeah, it's the microwave going off. That's what's happening. You might have a difficult time uh, catching that. So it's, it's really some of, one of those things you, you just have to be there when it happens. Anything to add to that, Steve? Nope, that's about it. Our fourth email comes in from Kevin. Kevin writes in and says, hi, guys. Any recommendations on a note-taking app that can be used on Windows, iOS, and Linux? Browser-based is fine. I'm looking to replace notes on my iPhone with something that I can also access from my computer. Thanks, Kevin. So my question here would be, do you need encryption? Because if you have encryption, if you need encryption, then my answer back to you is, tell me when you find something you really like. Standard notes is out there, but it's... It's like it's open source in the in in like kind of a dirty, slimy way they, it's open source and the code is technically there, but they they charge you to use the product, which is fine. I don't have a problem paying for open source software, but they charge you for things that I don't think are huge value ads like dark theme, for example. So I I struggle to recommend something like standard notes. Then the second opportunity or the second thing that I, I use quite frequently, and in fact, I'm using it right now is Hedgedoc. And what I like about Hedgedoc is it's stupid simple to set up and get up and running, works in a web browser, supports Markdown. It'll work on all the platforms you just uh, referenced. And if you ever need your files back out of it, they're all just Markdown files on the back end. So you can log in and you can either just download all the Markdown files and it'll download a big zip of all your Markdown files, or you can go into the database and pull them out that way. So might check that out. Steve, do you use notes for anything? I do not. I've I've always been baffled by this um, particular question. We've we've gotten it before in the past. Mm. I just I don't know why, but note taking has never been something that I guess I just set up a wiki and call it a day. Yeah, well, that's ultimately. I mean that's just a different way of doing notes. So I'm, you just you solve the problem a different way. Um, but yeah, I would check out HedgeDoc. You can learn more. Uh, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. But I think I think this is what you're looking for if you don't need encryption. Now, if you have questions, if you have thoughts, if you have follow-up to what we just talked about, we want to hear from you. Send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. The Coreboot Project has joined the Open Source Firmware Foundation. The Linux Foundation has announced a partnership with Rancher Government Solutions. OpenSUSE is considering phasing out support for older 64-bit processors. The Orange Pie Maker has plans to release an Arch-based Linux distribution in the future. Wine 7.22 has been released with both 32-bit and 64-bit improvements. Version 3.4 of Red Hat's Stratus storage solution has come out. LibreOffice 7.4.3, the open-source software suite, has been released with 100 bug fixes. Qt Creator 9 has come out with both C++ and QML improvements. Valve's Proton 7.0-5 release brings support for an additional 14 games to Linux and SteamOS. Alpine 3.17 has been released. Tails 5.7 has come out and adds a new metadata cleaner tool and the latest Tor updates. Clam AV version 1 LTS has been released, and Kata OS, an operating system for embedded machine learning hardware from Google, has been made available for download by the Google AmbiML team. And in other artificial intelligence news, Stable Diffusion 2.0 is now available as open source software. The smartest camera on wheels. It's a robot, and it's called the Morebot. You can learn more at morebot.com. Now, 
This is a totally open source security robot for intelligent monitoring. It's equipped with many advanced features, sensors such as AI algorithms. Scout is an ideal assistant for monitoring with no blind spot. It ha- its capabilities include object recognition, voice control via Amazon Alexa, uh, monocler slam, which is the simultaneous localization and mapping. It features a, a, a full HD camera with night vision, all wheel drive, Wi-Fi enabled with IOT mode, uh, which supports data encryption with high security, voice control with Alexa and Google, video streaming to Alexa or Google screen devices. Now, I'll have to tell you, Right off the bat, the only thing I was kind of unhappy to see is it didn't support Mycroft. Now, I know somebody that might be able to help with that maybe long term, but it seems like if you're building an open source security robot, you might want to use such a thing with your own voice assistant as opposed to one of the cloud ones. Scout is ideal for monitoring as well as pet watch and a companion. It features an auto patrol mode, which allows the robot to look around for you as scheduled. So whether you're watching a home or or your pet companion 24-7, Whether it can do on-time auto patrol with intelligent notifications and store things in the cloud, if that's for you, it's it's ideal for doing uh, inspection or exploration in hard-to-reach areas, always back to its charging port to get charged, and the AI-assisted intelligent with TensorFlow Slam and more. Scout is completely open source. The entire project is, and Scout's robotic control layer is also open source. So if you are an experienced robot uh, lover, then you can dig in with C coding and use 3D printing to add extension cools. This is the, the coolest thing ever. They have a list of, of accessories and things that you can do. You can print them in 3D uh, and you can attach them. Everything from LED torches to a little toy gun to a little robotic arm. Um, then the other thing that they do they let you program with something called Scratch. Now if you're not familiar with Scratch, Scratch is a graphical program that generates Python uh, code. And I first came across Scratch when my kids were in school. They their teachers were teaching them Scratch as a as a as a as a way to learn programming and get into technology. And essentially what it does is it creates little blocks and you drag you visually drag the little blocks and say I want this thing to be a variable. You can drag that in, then you can say I want an or uh, you know an if operator and if this happens I want it to go this way and if that happens and you just drag the little puzzle pieces and connect them if and then the if is true, you plug that puzzle piece in and it executes that you know, code. And if if you if it's false, you drag that puzzle piece down and it executes that code. So this becomes a very approachable device for kids. Um, and so with the Scratch module, it supports things like category system, media, motion control, AI functions, logic, math, loops, lists, and variables. Then it features what they call a UART port, a UART port, which if you're familiar with robotics, then this means something to you. If not, if you've ever used a serial connection or a console port in like a switch, it's very much the same thing. It gives you access to the device so that you can write directly to the device in the event you don't accidentally brick the thing. Um, so just a really cool thing. At first, when it came out, I was like, or I was looking at it, I was like, so what is this thing? Is it a, it's a robot? It's not really a kit. It's, it's a security camera. It's just a security camera on wheels that's attached to a robot and is completely open source top to bottom. Uh, so you can learn more at morebot, M-O-O-R-E, bot.com. And of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Steve, is this anything you'd ever have rolling around your house? I'm not really sure. Um, I don't like the idea of a lot of security cameras just as a general rule. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you told me that on the inside of your house. You're not a fan. 
Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm not sure. We have a we have a Roomba, and maybe that crosses some sort of line there, <laughs> especially now that they're owned by Amazon. But uh, I don't know, full on video camera like that. Mm. Not sure. Fair enough. Well, I'm okay with it in my house as long as it's all local, which the more bot is. Um, and so one of the things that's appealing to me about it is I, I ha- you have the opportunity then to send this little robot over to or watch for things that you wouldn't ordinarily need to be to watch. The other thing is when I leave, my dog gets... He, he he's lonely. He's a very people person. He likes to be on somebody's lap. He likes to get the scratches and the pets. And if you don't have the rubbles going on, he gets a little upset. So having a little robot that can follow him around and kind of hang out and then keep an eye on him, that appeals to me as well. Have you seen the Cooler Master Orb X? It's a workstation pod and it is extremely cool. They opened up the wait list so that you can apply to be on the wait list. It is a very extravagant alternative to, or excuse me, it's an alternative to extravagant uh, a desk. And so what it does is it's essentially a gaming chair of sorts, but it's an entire pod that includes wireless charging, USB ports, RGB LEDs, uh, a personal record and monitors. It has a monitor mount that you can support. You can mount either a 34 inch ultra wide, or you can mount three 27 inch monitors. Uh, a cooler master is letting people register for the waitlist for the Orb X, which is a multi-purpose station waitlist registration sidesteps even the pre-orders or the release date because obviously this is something they're anticipating or, or a lot of people are going to want. But the workstation uh, has a lot to offer people for office setups. So this is something that I'm seeing more and more at Ulta Speed Technologies. It used to be when you hired somebody, you would sit them down at a desk, you would set them up with a desktop and a monitor and a keyboard and a mouse. And that's how they worked. And eventually it turned into, well, we need two monitors and a keyboard and a mouse and a, and a CPU at your desk. And then this then, well, really, then COVID happened and we moved everyone home and said, hey, you had a desk with an Internet connection and a computer. Now we're going to take give you a laptop. We're going to send you home and we're going to give you an Internet connection and a phone and a laptop and good luck. And when they came back into the office, it was problematic because you had all of these people that had laptops. So docking became much more prevalent. Working off the laptop itself became much more prevalent. And what I saw happen in businesses is they moved from a model of everybody sits at their desk to you can sit anywhere you want. And so they had desks set up for people that want to traditionally work at a desk. But then they also had little work pods where they would have like little chairs or a couch or an end table or a little cafe, something like that. And you could just pick your laptop up and they don't care where you work. They just want you to get the job done. And so if you want to work off these little couches, you can. If you want to work off a little chair, you can. So I see this as the next evolution of that. If you can purchase a pod that it takes up 74 by 74 by 82 inches and 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 is you know 800 pounds so i guess it's going to take a couple people to move it but you purchase this thing you set it down and then you then you just have a a, a full on everything a person needs to do work now i haven't i wasn't able to track down a price um cooler master first teased the productivity pods and told uh, Tom's hardware that it would likely cost between 12 and $14,000. I suspect it's that I hope it's not that much money because I think they're going to significantly limit themselves. I don't think there's many gamers that are going to be paying $12,000 for a desk, but the concept of having a self-contained work pod or self-contained computer pod, I think is, is a really cool idea. Uh, Steve, have you checked this out? Is this anything that barks up your alley? Are you more of a, like, I have a desk, it works. Uh, I did take a look at this. Um, I believe that the pricing is actually um, the MSRP for three monitors is somewhere in the like uh, 
six thousand dollar yeah. uh, range. See, now we're talking. See, I can get so, I can get yeah. behind that. I thought it looked interesting, but because I stand, my first question to Noah when we were chatting about this beforehand <laughs> was like, "Can you stand in it?" Um, which the answer seems to be no, and I'm not comfortable sitting for long periods of time. Although maybe they do a really good job with the chair, and that would be something else. But I haven't found a chair that has been particularly comfortable to sit in for long periods. Yeah, and it's really it's not great for you. I mean, truthfully, if you if you really want to get the best uh, ergonomic experience, the answer really is to neither sit nor stand. The answer is to move, and it's easier to move when you're standing than it is when you're sitting. But keep your body moving, keep in motion. That's really the way to go. Hey. Last week, we got a lot of interest in speed test and alternatives of what you could use for speed test. So this week, we wanted to highlight OpenSpeedTest.com. OpenSpeedTest.com is an HTML5-based internet speed test. It uses no Flash, no Java, and you can self-host the entire thing. It works on any web browser, and you can test the internet connection on an iPad, an iPhone, an Android, a smart TV, Xbox, PlayStation, Windows, Mac, Linux, you name it. Uh, you can learn more at OpenSpeedTest.com. Of course, we'll have links for you in the show notes. And if you're not into self-hosting, so this is kind of the conversation that came up around this was, so it's really cool that you can self-host a speed test, and that's neat. But then the question becomes, so what if you have a gig connection to the world? Then what do you do? My ISP recently ran a uh, a deal where you could upgrade for two years to one gig, and they didn't. It did, and actually, my bill went down by $4. And so obviously, I took advantage of that, but then I wasn't able to actually do the speed test because it's hard to find a VM uh, for rent on, you know, DigitalOcean, Linode, whatever, that allows you to uh, support up to a gig. So that's a little problematic. So if you're looking to do that, you might have to, you know, rent some colo space or something like that if you really wanted to dig in to do a uh, self-host speed test. But for the average Joe... Am I on the internet? Is it working? All the things. This might be a really great option for you. OpenSpeedTest.com. You can learn more. And again, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. It's worth a mention, iPerf. So if you've not used iPerf, a very simple networking test, uh, uh, test software. You start iPerf server up on one client. You run the client on the other. And it just simply tells you what the throughput between those two clients are. Steve, I would imagine that iPerf is, is in, your, is in, your, uh, is in your, your shorthand toolbox. It is, but mostly only te for testing LAN. There's, right. there's, I'm more interested in a number that is going to make sense to people. Like if I can't send, like if I'm troubleshooting with my SP and I can't say, I went to this URL and I did this, then it's less useful unless I get somebody who happens to be really technical. Because if I'm like, yeah, so like I spun up this VM in the cloud and I ran this command from this thing to that thing, they're going to be like, what? So what's the speed, Steve? What is it? Does it yeah, work? Exactly. Does it not work? I don't understand. We don't care yep. about your little thing. Does our thing work? Yep, exactly. And so our iPerf is really good for lots of things. But when you're trying to get a, let's say an apples to apples, like most places will quote speedtest.net. And so when you're trying to do something like that, I usually will actually try and find something like we talked about last week. Yeah. Yeah. So you and you and we won't spoil it. You can go back and listen um, to last week's episode. You can find that at podcast.asknoahshow.com slash three fourteen. Uh, the last thing I wanted to draw some attention to is uh, this Eufy story. So the, Eufy is a company. They're owned by Anchor, the power company. You've probably heard of them. And 
If you have Eufy cameras in your home, did you buy them thinking that they weren't cloud-based and that they kept your data private? Because that was the promise from Eufy. And indeed, even though we install a lot of camera systems and everything we do is self-hosted all on the device and doesn't touch anything on the cloud, I've struggled to find a camera uh, manufacturer that does everything soup to nuts. So we are still using Synology Disk Station for the NVR, and then we're using access cameras because they're just really good cameras. Eufy was interesting to me because the promise was they were taking every step imaginable to ensure your data remains private and with you. So they had an app and they have what they call their little home base. And the idea was that you put your little doorbell camera up and it spoke to your little home base and stored all of the footage and all of the things there. Now, they provided you with cloud authentication. And the idea was that you could download the app and connect through their servers and it would get you back into your uh, Eufy home base without having to do firewall and all the things. Well, the problem became uh, they the, the, the promise there was that all of the stuff was going to be local. It was all going to be on the land. It wasn't going to the cloud. Doesn't need the cloud. You don't need the cloud. All of the things, right? It turns out that's not entirely accurate. The images that are used for notif- the push notifications are still and captured and sent to the cloud. So when you walk up and you trigger the motion thing, it's not necessarily sending a live video feed up to Eufy's cloud servers or AWS, but it's absolutely taking a still picture both before the motion event and after the motion event. And then it uses that to generate the thumbnail. The thumbnail is then what's viewable on your phone. Now it gets worse. It turns out these images are stored on AWS. That's what they're using for their CDN. And if you know what you're doing, uh, you can get access to this. uh, So by default, it's supposed to require a password. The problem is they didn't do a very good job. So if you know what you're doing, you can get to the root directory and basically browse this open bucket of still images on the wide open Internet. Additionally, there's a bunch of metadata that's contained in those images and in the transmission. So. I frankly, Steve, this really bothers me. I kind of struggle to understand this because it seems like with the marketing that they had, they could have had some sort of tail scale thing, the ability to broker the connection and just connect back to the home base. There was never any reason to store this stuff in the cloud. There had to have been ways that you could generate that that still caption image and send the push notification from the home base as opposed to their AWS servers. They chose not to do that. And it it, it just it, it highlights the difference between a company like Spider Oak which is actually technically secure and and is doing everything in a good faith effort to try to maintain your privacy and security. And and Yuffie, who took advantage of people who wanted to buy a private local-based thing and then kind of skirted the issue because they wanted to make it convenient and easy and at the end of the day figured no one would bother to look. And then somebody did. And now they have egg on their face. It's a tough call, right? Like I understand there's there's some te- technical challenges here. I'm I'm not sympathetic to Ufi. I'm just saying that I understand that there is definitely some technical hurdles to I have a phone that is connected to the internet and how do I get these things pushed to the phone properly? Sure. I would say you probably could look at some open source things like right. uh Home Assistant, right? I get push notifications from my Home Assistant app and somehow it's not connected to the internet and somehow that works. You know, there's, there's stuff out there. It's disappointing. And ultimately I imagine that it was a lazy route. Yeah. Yep. I, I completely agree there. I, th- I, again, I think tail scale and the, the technology existed to do this. They just chose not to do that. And that's disappointing. But if you're looking for tails or if you're looking for 
Uh, Eufy Alternatives, highly recommend you check out Synology and Access Cameras. It's a little bit more work to get them set up, but I promise you the images won't leave your house. When you buy technology, you really have one of two choices. You're either buying technology in the form of a consumable or you're making an investment in something that you plan to have for a very long time. Now, companies don't like it when you purchase something and have it for a very long time because it eliminates their opportunity for repeat business. If, on the other hand, you buy something and it becomes out of date very quickly, that's advantageous for the company making it because it means you'll have to buy the newer model. This is oftentimes referred to as planned obsolescence. So my question to you is, what steps do you take to keep your technology sustainable and what's been your experience in doing so? I wanted to, to share with you an incident that happened. So a few weeks ago, I talked about purchasing a Sophos firewall appliance. So this is my new favorite firewall appliance to use. And I was at, you're able to get them on eBay for just a couple hundred dollars. They are basically on the inside, just an Intel computer. So it makes it incredibly flexible to use for a number of different things. And when I purchased uh, the Sophos appliance right out of the gate, I could tell I was dealing with something very high quality. Now, Sophos themselves, I don't I don't like the software. I don't like the company. I don't like the subscription model. I don't like any of that. But the hardware is fantastic. And it turns out it's brain dead simple to install anything you want on it because you literally just plug a flash drive into it and it boots up. It's an Intel computer. You hit the boot menu. You choose the USB thing. And Bob's your uncle. You're into the installer of whatever it is you want to put on it. So I purchased the Sophos firewall appliance. I bought the I bought the, the two, uh, 212, whatever it was, and plugged it in rack mount unit and plugged it in and installed PFSense on it. And I, I got it running, and the first thing I noticed was the incredible speed difference between even the the pre-built appliances that are running on, you know, uh, you know, little Intel Atoms or something like that, and getting it to an actual computer just made a huge difference. So I I put the router appliance in, and I got it configured. I decked it out to the nine, Steve. I got everything dialed in exactly the way I wanted it because I figured this was going to be here for a long time. And backed up the config, did all the things, and the responsiveness was great. The speed was great. I mean, everything was just fantastic. So I did my due diligence testing, made sure everything worked, and I spent a few hours, and then I put it into the rack and cabled everything and got everything buttoned up nice, and everything was great. So that was Saturday. I made it to Tuesday of last week. And I get I start getting messages from my wife. I can't get on the Internet, get a message from her a little bit later. I can't even get a local IP. I can't even talk to anything on the network. So, you know, the last thing is shoemaker's kids has no shoes, right? The last thing I feel like doing after I've gotten home troubleshooting people's networks all day is to come home and troubleshoot my network. It's it literally it couldn't there, there isn't a thing I would rather not do. And so. I came home and I went downstairs and got the little uh, appliance-based firewall that I had had previously to the Sophos and plugged it back in. And it doesn't nearly have the capacity of the Sophos and didn't have the speed of the Sophos, but at least it worked. So got myself through the rest of the week. And then this past weekend, I thought, well, I better dig in and see what's wrong. So I pulled the, went through the trouble of uncabling the rack and pulled the Sophos out of the rack and put it over on the test bench and plugged it in. And what I found was no, no boot disk or disk error. Open the thing up pull out the 2.5 inch SSD, plug it into a, to a little icy dock. Nothing. It's dead. Okay. The storage is dead. I can handle that. Go get an SSD, put an SSD in, still had the installer from PFSense from the week before install PFSense, reloaded my config back up and running. I thought this is great. I go put it back in the rack. So far as I know, everything is still fine uh, to this day, but it, un, it, it, it highlighted something for me. 
When you're purchasing devices, do are you purchasing them because you expect them to be a consumable? So if, as an example, when I purchase a Netflix subscription or if I purchase um, you know, a cable TV subscription, I assume that that is going to be a consumable service. I can, I assume that I will pay a little bit. I will use it for a little bit. And then if I stop paying, it will not be there and I won't be upset about that. And it's the same way that I treat like saw blades or drill bits or electrical tape. I don't expect those things to have a high return on my investment. I expect to spend the money and I expect them to eventually wind up in the trash. And that's okay with me because I'm purchasing it as a consumable. It didn't really occur to me at the time that I bought firewall appliances that I was purchasing consumable devices that eventually they would hit a limit or have some sort of failure. And because it's all one unit and because it has no way to modify it, repair it or do anything to it, it's essentially trash. And purchasing the Sophos unit and going through this experience highlighted the experience in my mind's eye that there are two different ways you can purchase technology. One is to purchase the consumable technology. I buy it, it shows up in a box, I unwrap it, I plug it in, it works, it does the thing. When it stops working, I throw it in the trash and we move on with our day. We got it handled. The other way is I buy something, if and when it breaks, I'm not gonna throw it out, I'm gonna go fix it. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go nurse it back to health. I'll go find the part that's broken and I'll replace it and it will likely cost me a fraction of what it would have cost to replace that device or even buy another consumable device. The other thing is, because it's just Intel hardware, it works with any operating system. So today, I'm using PFSense, but I'm actively testing OpenSense and have been for the last year or so. I would eventually like to move to OpenSense. Guess what? That routing appliance allows me to use OpenSense, PFSense, if I wanted to, some of the next great thing, whatever it is, I'm now investing in my technology to where I own that device. That's my routing appliance. And I can choose what software I want to run on my routing appliance, just like I choose what software I want to run on my laptop or on my desktop or on anything else. It's easy to replace. It's easy to fix. So again, my question to you, what steps do you take with your technology to make it sustainable? And what's been your experience? Has it worked out for you? Or do you not care because it's just too easy to, you know what? I spend a few hundred bucks if it, if it winds up in the trash. I mean, that's really not the end of the world. I have better things to worry about. Second thing that this, uh, where this kind of played out for me this last week, my kids loved Minecraft. They were obsessed with Minecraft. And when Microsoft purchased Minecraft and started requiring a Microsoft account to play Minecraft, my wife and I had a, had a parent discussion. We decided we weren't going to let the kids sign up for Microsoft accounts. And it was a line in the sand for us. And so we just explained to them, here's the information that Microsoft wants from us to create this account. Here's why we're unwilling to do that. And so I'm sorry, but this is kind of the end of the road. And it brought up a discussion where my kids started asking very legitimate questions that any person who saved up 20 or $30 and bought a thing would ask. How can this company do this to me? I own Minecraft. I paid for it, didn't I? So how can this company now come in years later buy out the company that I purchased a product from and now tell me that I can't use the product I made. I could understand if they won't let me run the latest version of Minecraft, Dad. I can understand if I can't have access to the latest, coolest, greatest thing. If there's something new and great that Microsoft is going to do with it, so be it. If I can't have access to that, why do I not have access to the existing product that I already paid for? And I didn't have an answer for them. And so for a while, for a few months, really, it was just kind of this Debbie Downer attitude of, well, they weren't going to do that. So they would still watch Minecraft videos, but they would move on to other games. And so they got into Xenonic for a while. And what really kind of kicked that off was 
my son has a dedicated server that he was using for Minecraft. When this whole fiasco kicked off, he then transitioned it into a Xenotic server and was playing that and found it really easy, actually, to set up a dedicated Xenotic server. So that played for a little bit, but it didn't quite have the same appeal as Minecraft. Eventually, they stumbled into MindTest, which is an open source implementation of Minecraft, and I might add, a far superior one. And within a couple of moments, they were able to just download and run MindTest. And what was shocking to me, although not terribly surprising, was all of the mods in Minecraft, you have to get Java running, and a specific, the right version of Java, then you have to get the server running. Then if you want mods, you have to put the mods in. But if, you don't, if you're not a masochist, you need some sort of mod manager, so you put that on, and then you have to get those mods onto the client as well. So it's, it's, it's a process. With MindTest, you literally open the client, click on the mods, and go, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one, okay, and boom, you have the mods and they work. Everything just works out of the box. So this then led to a discussion of, well, how do we, how do we, like, what server should I run this on? I want to run this as a dedicated server. So my son ends up putting Arch on uh, his, his, his previous, uh, what was a Minecraft server, and everything, he pulls down MindTest server, uh, MindTest, uh, you know, dash server or whatever from the AUR, and out of the box, it just works. And again, there's this light bulb that goes off in my mind. Wow, that is sustainable technology. When you're playing in the sandbox, look at that. The people that wrote MindTest wanted it to work on a Linux distribution. The people who made the libraries for the Linux distribution wanted it to work with MindTest. All of these people were willing to put their code and make it available inside of the AUR so that it was easy to pull down off of the internet. And because everybody was working together all in the same sandbox, everything worked flawlessly and there wasn't any troubleshooting that needed to be done. Now, when everybody wants to work together, the distro wants the software, the software wants the libraries, all the things are available, things work. It's when you start to cross into the territory with somebody that doesn't want to play in your sandbox that you run across a problem. And this is what has turned me off to things like Arch in the past is I try to go run, you know, let's say TeamViewer for, and I'm not picking on TeamViewer, but just a, a piece of proprietary software that may or may not have been tested with that particular version. And again, because in this case, TeamViewer is playing in a different sandbox and they have no cognizant you know, insight or care really to my sandbox. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And that's kind of on me. Once you move into companies, software developers and ecosystems that support your endeavor to have sustainable technology, you're able to do that and they want to work with you. So again, have you thought about keeping technology sustainable and what's been your experience? How has that worked out for you? I'll tell you how it's worked out for us. Names in MindTest are amazing. So it shows you the avatar and then a little name. No matter how far away you get from other players in the world, there's always that player's name out in, in Neverland and you can skate towards that player and uh, fly towards that player and catch up with them. Also, because it's, uh, is it C, Steve, or C++? I believe it's C++. It's fast. It's super fast. It's not some little Java engine. It's a native game. And and it shows. It works fantastically well. And then they have all of these other little additions. Now, to be fair, once my kids figured out that it was, all you had to do was drop mods in a folder or pull them down uh, in the client, and they went like ham on, on putting mods in. So to be fair, I can't tell you at this point anymore what parts of these are native mind test features and what parts of these are the mods that my kids have installed. But I, my wife and I were playing uh, with a game, and the kids came over on their dragons, because that's a thing, and 
we jumped onto the dragons and then the kids are flying us around and we're just kind of sitting there on, on our dragons. And so my wife is on one dragon, I'm on the other and each of our kids are flying the dragons. My wife looks over at me and she's like, this is way better than Minecraft. This is way better than Minecraft. First of all, all the animals, all the mods just work. Second of all, we're not having version issues every five seconds. And third of all, everybody, everything from my youngest child uh, all the way up to my oldest child was able to get the, running on their own system all by themselves without any help because it was so easy to do so. Uh, and they support things like teleport icons. So you can have like a little inventory and you can right click. And what we used to have was uh, like, like, coordinates and then when we wanted to get somewhere or go somewhere we would teleport to that particular coordinate um mind test integrates that right into the game and so you can click on the little teleport icon and it gives you a list of all of the places that you can go to so i just i don't have quite enough good things to say uh about mind test and i know steve you uh you have played mind test and and also if i recall think it's a superior product to minecraft I I like Mind Test a lot. I like that it it's cross-platform, like you can play it on your Android devices and and so on. And everybody in my house was able to play it if we wanted to, because we all didn't have to shell out thirty dollars to play together. Yeah. Uh, that was that was really nice. The thing for Minecraft is that it kind of has the the name right. It's got the name brand yes. appeal, and that's 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 ultimately the uphill battle because honestly. The because the pixel art is the same, you really can't. You could tell if if you're you know deep into the Minecraft mod, like oh this doesn't mm -hmm. have the fusion mod or those sorts of things. That's true. But if you're playing the base game, there isn't really a ton different. Like the 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 creepers, like the bad guys are a little bit different and stuff like that. But right. the fundamental gameplay is the same. And my wife and I used to play with my oldest son uh, until he decided similar to uh, little Noah that, well, you know what? It's not Minecraft, so I'm not going to like it. Yes. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah. Yeah. You watched that. You watched that conversation with my son unfold firsthand. So Steve, what efforts, if any, do you make to keep technology sustainable and what's been your experience? It's a hard one when you're dealing with sustainable technology. Uh, largely, I don't buy things that I can't do something with. Like I won't buy the bottom of the barrel hardware because I know I'm going to pass it down. And I guess my, my quintessential example here is I had a desktop that I had when my wife and I were dating. It then became a media center for us. And it now serves as the children's, uh, the children's computer right now that plays the aforementioned Minecraft and mind test. Mm. And at this point, my wife and I are married 11 years, been together 14 or 15 years. That tells you how old that computer is. It's a, uh, the original i7 down there running on ddr3 ram but we put as like i've updated the ssd and i've put in some decent ddr3 ram over the years and you know what aside from the power draw it still does goes great and that's that's the one thing i wanted to address here was i struggle with the power draw when i think about sustainability like i've I've thought about replacing that computer downstairs with something that pulls significantly less power. And my wife's like, well, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of just bought part for it like two years ago or something. And it seems to be doing okay. Like, yeah, that's true. You know, like I would really like to replace this thing that's pulling down 110 watts or whatever it's pulling down with something that that's arguably far, far superior in terms of speed and pulling, you know, a tenth of the wattage. It's a it's a hard battle. It's it's a difficult 
decision to make. And I'm not really sure where I've fallen down on that. So for you, it's part of the purchase decision. When you go out to purchase something, that is the point when you start evaluating, hey, is this something that is going to be sustainable or is this something that's consumable? Absolutely. I will not buy something like my dad is one of those people is like, yeah, you know, it's 90 bucks or he'll buy a Roku stick. I'm like, nuts to that. I'm not doing that. This thing's going to be garbage in a year when whatever thing Netflix or whatever decides to do an upgrade. Right. Because the processing power essentially doubles every year. And so they try to take advantage of the newer software packages, but then the older hardware just can't keep up. And what you wind up with is a mountain hill of trash, of electronic trash. That, And by the way, everything, not that I'm some, you know, tree tree lover, but everything made out of plastic still exists to this day. Virtually everything we've ever made still exists. So the more that we can put even a modicum of thought into how can we purchase something one time and get the maximum amount of use out of it, it's okay if technology gets stagnant. It's okay if things get outdated. I have plenty of 32-bit i386 processors that are likely not very useful today, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying that you have to buy something and you have to have it for life, but my gosh, could we get five years out of it? Could we get 10 years out of it? And I look at what's happening with cell phones, it, and, it, and it, it drives me up the wall. If my grandfather knew that people spent $1,200 on a telephone that they couldn't change the battery in, the man would roll over in his grave, Steve. I mean, I I don't disagree with that. Unfortunately, in terms of the cell phones, we we have very little choice, especially if you're constrained by, let's say, business processes, right? And yeah. some of us some of us are constrained by business processes, and that means that you have to make that. It, I'd say compromise choice. You know, mm. I'm either on a Pixel or an iPhone or whatever because, and you know fill in your reason here, I would have liked to have chosen something that I could actually swap the battery out for. Fun fact, I have my last three phones that are still working, and one of them I use as a travel phone when I when I leave the country. Uh, we'll have to leave it there, Steve, but I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think uh, I, I think that's awesome. And I, well, I think it's disappointing that that is the case. I think it's awesome that you're at least aware of that. And like you, um, I think a lot of us find ourselves inside of a boat in which we don't have a choice but to use some of the technology in order to get our jobs done. Um, but maybe something to think about the next time you go to purchase something. Is this sustainable or is it consumable? Hey, the music in our ears, it means we're out of time. We invite you to send in your challenge coin stars. We're doing a challenge coin, but we're doing it a little bit differently. You have to earn it. I want to hear how you've served somebody in the open source or Linux community. Tell us your story. You can send those in to live at asknoahshow.com. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.